Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. This episode contains sensitive material, including graphic depictions of sexual assault, which some listeners may find especially distressing or traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. Do you really know your neighbors? Do you trust them? Should you trust them? This time on Invisible Choir. Take a look around. Whether you're sitting in the car, stuck in the morning commute, or sprawled out on the couch by the fireplace enjoying a nice tall glass of wine, are your doors locked? There is something so fundamentally profound in that action alone, locking the door. We're taught from a young age to find immense security in the gesture that the flip of a switch or the turn of a knob can somehow keep the evils of the world at bay. Think about it. Have you ever tucked yourself in bed at night, only to lay there awake and wonder, did I remember to lock the door? After today, you'll definitely want to get up and check just to make sure, because we're covering an absolutely frightening case of young love and vulnerability, and we'll quickly learn why you can't always trust your neighbors, and how sometimes we inadvertently let the wolf into our homes only to find out he was hiding in sheep's clothing all along. Get someone down here right now before I kill him. They're, they're on their way, okay? Because I think my neighbor did it. It was a particularly cold 26-degree March evening in the heartland of America in Clarksville, Indiana. The clock transformed an otherwise typical late Friday evening into the early morning hours of Saturday. But one man's horrendous actions were about to trigger a ripple effect of devastation through the city of just over 20,000 residents along the Ohio Riverbank. Mostly known for its tourist attractions, Clarksville is home to the original Texas Roadhouse restaurant and lays claim to one of the nation's largest bass pro shops. It represents what many consider classic Americana, Solid jobs, decent schools, generally considered a safe place to raise a family. Until tonight. Seventeen-year-old Tara Willenborg settled in for another Friday evening home alone, while her live-in fiancé, Joshua Lewis, finished out his evening shift at Amazon.com. Tara was born in Jeffersonville, Indiana on March 10, 1995. She went to high school there and attended St. Luke's United Church of Christ with her parents. She was fiercely independent and people knew her for her deep love and passion for animals. She was a high school cross-country athlete, enjoyed baking and art, and carried the nickname Pixie for her vibrant, youthful personality. She had recently quit high school 
due to anxiety-induced panic attacks and was eager to put her childhood behind her and to start a new life with her fiancé as an adult. Lewis was 21 at the time, and since the age of consent in Indiana was 16, they moved in together and soon planned to get married. Josh had been saving up to buy Tara an engagement ring, but they both had taken to telling friends and family that they were already happily engaged. Tara had just earned her GED two weeks prior and was anticipating her long-awaited 18th birthday on March 10th, just eight days after. They had just moved into a modest second-floor apartment at the Cambridge Square Complex on the 700 block of Camden Court and planned to start their new lives together, young and in love. It was their first home as a couple. It was everything either one of them could have ever dreamed of until the early morning hours of Saturday, March 2nd, when Joshua Lewis would return home from work and all of it would come crashing down. Number one, let's get us here, Ramsey. My girlfriend is raped and I think she's dead. Both Josh and Tara were firm believers in keeping their front door securely locked, protecting them both from the uncertainties of the outside world. In their new apartment, surrounded by new neighbors, it had become natural habit for the both of them. So when Josh finished his evening shift and returned to the couple's home around 325 that Saturday morning in 2013, he was surprised and immediately alarmed to find their front door unlocked. Immediately suspecting trouble, he rushed inside. Upon entering the couple's back bedroom, he found Tara lying on the floor, naked and unresponsive, with a black cloth tightly wrapped around her neck. She was already cold to the touch and her mouth full of her own vomit. He sprinted across the hall to the adjoining next door neighbor's apartment to ask for help and request that they call 911. A disheveled and worried looking man answered the door and indicated he would phone for help. Joshua then returned to their apartment and began administering CPR to his young fiance lying there naked on the bedroom floor. After almost 20 minutes of chest compressions, Josh phoned 911 himself only just beginning to realize that the neighbor hadn't phoned 911 at all and that Tara's fate had likely already been sealed. I need someone here now. Okay, is she breathing? No, she ain't. There's vomit, she's been beat. Cause there was something tied around her neck, I just cut it off, she's dead. I can't, I've been doing CPR for the past 20 minutes. She ain't coming back. Okay, you're gonna take your hands and you're gonna place them. She's on the floor, right? Yes. Okay. You're going to put your hand in the center of her chest, right between the nipples. Alright. Okay? Yes. Push down hard and fast, two inches in depth. Okay? And you're going to try You're gonna try to pump twice every second. It's going to be about 100 compressions a minute. Say that again. It's going to be very quickly paced. You're going to want to do about 100 compressions per minute, okay? Okay, do it 100 times. I'm sorry? Do it a hundred times? Like, what, put down her chest a hundred times? Is that what you're saying? Keep doing that. I'll do 30 of them, okay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Giving Josh instructions on how to perform CPR, the 911 operator continues to try to keep him calm while police and first responders are dispatched to the scene. As he crouches down to give Tara mouth to mouth, he violently gags in between breaths every time his lips meet hers, her mouth ejecting vomit into his own. He continues desperately trying to breathe life back into her already cold body, but
but with every firm press on her chest, Josh's frustrations and suspicions continue to grow. Okay, when you do 30, you're going to need to tilt her head back and give her two breaths. Okay, then it's actually more compressive. It's like air's coming out, but I think it's... Keep doing it. Keep doing it. 30 more compressions. Give her two more breaths. And then go back to 30 more compressions. With every one of Josh's forceful breaths sputtering back out of her lifeless gray lips in vain, he begins developing a suspicion that the disheveled man sitting in his next door neighbor's apartment, who at the time looked more worried than concerned, had not actually phoned 911 for help as he had implied earlier. And there was something odd about Tara's position, lying there on the floor, her body showing all the obvious signs of a violent sexual assault, and likely now, her death. Can you do there you go. Come on, baby. Thirty more compressions. Keep going. Keep going. Just sounds like she's choking on her own vomit. I can tell she vomited. Bruise all around her neck. She's a good colors. I don't feel cold. Okay, keep doing compression. Can you even imagine the hope and ambition of young love, a future marriage, a new home, and newfound independence? Everything so violently and tragically taken away from you in the darkness of night. After continuing CPR for another few minutes, the call is abruptly disconnected. The operator phones Josh back immediately to continue giving directions until medics respond. He wavers in and out of shock, feelings of hopelessness intermittently overcome with anger. He already knows who is responsible. Come here. My girlfriend's been breaking f***ing dead. Sir, are you still doing the CPR? Yeah, I can do a CPR. Okay. Who's there with you? My neighbor. Okay. Come on, baby. Oh, God. Yeah, that's right, okay? Josh continues desperately fighting, one chest compression at a time, to save Tara's life. Neither he nor the 911 operator realize that she had already likely been dead for some time. During the commotion, another neighbor, Christopher Henderson, joins Joshua's side to offer support and takes the phone to speak with the operator. Hello? Hello, do you know about how old she is? She's uh, 17, I think. She's 17? Yeah, she's 17, I think. Yeah. Keep on, keep on going. Okay, yeah, tell him to keep going. Don't stop. I have everybody in the house. Yeah, he, 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 he knows what he's doing. He's, he's uh, doing it. Okay, he's doing it just right. 
Yeah, he's trying to bring her back. Okay, go ahead and keep doing what he was doing a second ago. He's doing just right. Yeah. And he found her like this? Yeah. Okay. Who? What do you say? What do you say? Bring her back, bro. I'm sorry, what was that? He's trying to bring her back. I don't, man, I wonder who the f did this shit, man. What's her name? Uh, what's her name, bro? What's her name? Huh? What, what's her name? Who? Alright. Give him the phone. I am. Hello? Yeah. Okay, is he still doing the CPR? Yeah, he's still doing it. Okay. You all have the door unlocked so that the crews can come inside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're on their way up right now. Okay, I was going to say they should be there. All right. Yeah, she, she's here. They're here. I'm going to Tara was officially pronounced dead shortly after paramedics arrived some 40 minutes after Josh had first come home and discovered her lifeless body. The couple's next door neighbor, Meredith Henderson, reported that her live-in boyfriend at the time, who she only knew as Richard, had grabbed his bags by their front door and immediately left after Josh first came by in a panic asking for help. Suspicions immediately turned to the 49-year-old man as police established a perimeter and began their search. It would only take them a few hours before spotting the man whose full name was Richard Carly Hooten, approximately one mile from the crime scene, walking along Eastern Boulevard. He immediately surrendered to police, but the public was only just beginning to learn how dark a past Hooten had, and that he was already a fugitive on the lam and a convicted sex offender at the time of Tara's brutal murder. Good morning, and the prosecutors here at the Clark County Courthouse are already calling this a high-profile case. They say not only because of the nature of the case, but because this man was wanted by police for failing to register as a sex offender. On Saturday morning, 17-year-old Tara Willenborg was found dead in her Cambridge Square apartment. Clark County Prosecutor Jeremy Mull tells WDRB she was sexually assaulted before her murder. Now we're learning more about the man arrested for the crime, 49-year-old Richard Hooten. According to the Indiana Sex Offender Registry, Hooten's past offenses date back to 1993 when he was convicted of aggravated sodomy and rape in Georgia and most recently charged in 2009 with sexual battery in Indiana. He had an outstanding warrant for failing to register as a sex offender. Some neighbors there say they knew of Hooten and say they'd seen him there just before the crime. Police picked Hooten up just about a mile away on Saturday and arrested him. Police had their man. 49-year-old Richard Hooten was in custody within hours after Tara's death, and as the primary suspect in her murder, his actions the day following his arrest go completely against the norm. Instead of maintaining his silence and hunkering down in a small concrete county jail cell to prepare for an eventual trial, Hooten wanted to talk, to explain exactly what had happened. 
and in an uncharacteristically bold move, Clark County Sheriff Dan Rodden permitted Hooten to stage a live press conference in the lobby of the Clark County Jail in Jeffersonville, Indiana, just six days after his arrest. With over a dozen reporters and media outlets present, corrections officers usher Hooten out into the lobby, chained and shackled at the hands and feet and draped in a bright orange prisoner jumpsuit. He sits down at the head of a long table, eyes squinting at the many bright camera lights, and begins fielding questions. Richard, why don't you start with what you want to say to Terrace I'm just sorry what happened, you know. I wish I could take it back, you know. Take us back. What happened Saturday morning? I just lost it, you know. Left uh, Rojo's friends and my girlfriend. I came back and she was sitting on the steps. And, you know, when I went back to my apartment, I come back at She was still sitting out there and asked me to hang out. So we went her and started hanging out there. So. When did you know, when did you decide that you were going to attack her? Did you plan it? I didn't really plan it, you know. He didn't really plan it or nothing like that because I went into her apartment and then, you know, she was a pretty girl, you know. But I didn't know she was 17. I thought she was like 19 or 20, you know. Would that have made any difference? Not really. Maybe a little bit because she's, you know, a minor, you know. 17 years old to me as a minor, you know. But you're a rapist, you've admitted. I mean, I know that. I never raped nobody younger than me. Hooten had raped before and possessed at least six prior felony convictions across three states for crimes ranging from stabbing, assault, and rape all the way to a prison escape. On three separate occasions, Indiana courts made critical decisions that ultimately set Hooten free each and every time, back into the streets where he was free to continue preying upon innocent women. She was crying and telling you not to do this. Why did you continue to do that? I just lost it in my head. I just lost control. Were you under the influence? Were you drinking on any drugs? I went on drugs. I mean, I was drinking earlier. You know, at the house. Had she been drinking? Or was she under any influence? I don't know. I don't know if she was drinking or not. How many, how many times does this happen? Uh, I got accused for rape about three or four times. You've been to prison for rape three or four times? Hooten had been to prison before. In fact, at only 49 years of age, he had by now spent nearly half of his entire life behind bars by the time he raped and killed Tara Willenborg. Hooten's pattern of victimization was lengthy and after a time became almost predictably routine because with each charge and conviction, it became clear that Richard Carley Hooten was an opportunist who attacked those most readily accessible to him at any given time, including his own neighbors. The Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting dug into Richard's prior convictions and identified two separate occasions where Indiana courts sent him back out into the streets on supervised release rather than sending the habitual and predictably violent man back to prison. But Hooten's past as a young adult was arguably just as alarmingly violent as his most recent string of crimes in Indiana. We obtained the original arrest and conviction records for Hooten spanning from 1984 to 2011. The extent of his predatory behavior and the strikingly predictable patterns he exhibited reveal a man who simply could not take no for an answer, ever. 
In his first felony offense from the Commonwealth of Kentucky courts in 1984, Hooten narrowly avoided a felony rape conviction when he was just 20 years old, as the charge was amended to assault two under extreme emotional duress when he received a two-year prison sentence that was ultimately probated to just 60 days in jail with a five-year supervised probation period. Hooten accepted the plea deal, confirming that he had caused physical injury to a woman, repeatedly beating her with a coat hanger before pushing her and tying her up. The charge of rape was dropped. Just a year later in 1985, at age 21, after having been out of jail after the prior arrest for only three months, Hooten stabbed a male acquaintance while he and another friend were watching television at home. The man allegedly made a sexual pass at Hooten, placing his hand on Hooten's penis. Hooten claims the man then retreated to the kitchen, where he then returned with a knife, demanding that Hooten take all of his clothes off after he'd again explained that he was not gay, exclaiming, quote, Back away. I ain't that way, you know. I ain't gay. The man that allegedly attacked Hooten with a knife, stabbing him once in the arm before Hooten gained control of the weapon, stabbing him in the throat in return before narrowly escaping. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his role as a now-repeat felony offender. The other man in question denied Hooten's recollection of events, alleging that the stabbing took place on the couch and that Hooten never acted in self-defense, but as the aggressor in the altercation. Just two years later in 1987, while incarcerated in Kentucky for the stabbing conviction, Hooten briefly escaped prison after climbing a fence with three other offenders, but was quickly apprehended, landing himself an additional two-year sentence for the escape attempt. Then, in 1990, not even four years into his now 12-year prison sentence, Hooten was paroled and immediately absconded from supervision. Though his fugitive status lasted only a short time, he was quickly apprehended and imprisoned again, but in a shocking turn of events, he was paroled less than a year later again in 1991. And just as predictably as he had before, Richard Hooten absconded from supervision and disappeared. Authorities would not hear from Hooten again until 1992 when he was arrested in Griffin, Georgia and charged with one count of rape, two counts of aggravated sodomy, one count of aggravated assault, and one count of burglary. The victim this time was Hooten's next-door neighbor, who reported to police that he'd knocked on her front door, asking if he could come inside for a glass of water. She went back inside to retrieve a glass for Hooten, and when opening the door to give it to him, he placed his foot in the doorway and forced his way inside, repeatedly asking her where her husband was and when he was expected home. The woman explained that he was off fishing and was not expected home for a few days. Hooten allegedly pushed her down onto the sofa, asking if he could see her naked. Every time she struggled to free herself or attempted to scream, Hooten raised his fist in a menacing manner and continued on with the attack. He eventually forced the woman to perform oral sex on him and then forcefully penetrated her anus. He repeatedly told the woman to call him daddy and tell him how much she liked what he was doing to her. After Hooten finished, the woman ran outside and Hooten followed her, explaining that he somehow felt guilty for what he had done, as if just moments before, he had no control over his actions. He begged the woman to keep the assault, quote, our little secret, and not to tell anyone. The woman's toddler was asleep in the very next room during the entire attack. Hooten pleaded guilty to the charges and was sentenced to another 15 years in prison, where he wouldn't see the light of day outside of the prison yard again until 2008. Are there other crimes you've committed that you haven't gone to prison for? Not right now, right? What crime are they investigating in Louisville? I 
this crime, I did a, a rape over. You just said that you did. Well, I committed that. I, I committed that rape. I told him. When was that? That's around, uh, around January first. Who was it? I can't remember her name. I met her at the bar. Can you tell us what happened? What bar was it, dear? It's not too far from. Uh, well, I met her. I can't remember that bar, but the bar I committed the crime was uh, Old Ollie's. Where's that? What happened there? It's over on Old Third Street. Okay. So how old is she? About 50, 40, something. Hooten willingly confesses to the media for another rape still under investigation at the time of his arrest for Willenborg's murder. His calm, straightforward demeanor is bizarre, but it's a chance reporters rarely see in the span of an entire career, to speak directly with the murderer shortly after his arrest and ask him anything, right there in the county jail lobby. But Hooten apparently wanted to come clean, to bring Tara's family closure in the days immediately following her death, because though he was a confessed serial rapist, he damn sure wasn't a murderer, and he wanted people to know that Tara's death was apparently accidental. How do, you, how do you feel about murdering Tara? Pretty bad. You know, I wish I could take it back. How did that happen? How did it go from just, you've obviously raped women before. Why did it increase to, to murder? I was just having sex with her and anxiety on me, I guess. You know, when I had my hand around her throat and I just kept going and going, you know. I didn't know how strong I was really putting pressure on her, you know. Why did you keep going when she was crying and telling you no and, and clearly in a lot of breathing? Pain. I just blocked it out. You know, when thinking about it after it was too late. But accident or not, Putin's past preceded him. And since being released from prison in Georgia, most recently in 2008, the 49-year-old continued his reign of terror, this time in his home state of Indiana, where he had returned after his release to be closer to family. And the fact that he hadn't been sent to prison again, this time for life, is simply shocking. Just months after his most recent release, Hooten was back at it again in 2009 in Charlestown, Indiana when he was charged and convicted with forcing his way into a neighbor's apartment and groping her. The victim in this case reported that Hooten knocked on their door, and when her son answered it, he opened up the storm door and walked inside uninvited. She asked him politely to leave, but he declined and sat next to her there on the couch, where she was sitting underneath a blanket. He reached his hand underneath and continued up underneath her shorts, groping her vaginal area. She jumped up and demanded Hooten leave, to which he reached into his pocket and took out a $100 bill, asking her to quote, think about it, it will be between you and I. He was charged and convicted with sexual battery and residential entry, both class D felonies in the state of Indiana. Instead of receiving any prison time for the offenses, Hooten agreed to another plea deal and was sentenced to three years probation for the assault by Clark County Magistrate Kenneth Abbott. His continued freedom was viewed as missed opportunity number one in a crime spree that ultimately led to Tara Willenborg's tragic murder. His violent past was never even brought up in court as he faced these latest charges, and his probation officer at the time referred to Hooten as, quote, a ticking time bomb, 
and was surprised to learn that he was not sent back to prison for his latest offense. The second missed opportunity came in 2011 in Connersville, Indiana, in Fayette County, when Hooten was charged with illegally possessing a firearm and failing to appropriately register as a sex offender. The charges came after a concerned church congregation member began Googling Hooten's name after it had been reported that he was dating a, quote, simple-minded woman who also attended the same church as the woman who reported him to police. Hooten was described as being, quote, a little too friendly with the woman's five-month-old daughter and that his relationship with her, quote, just didn't feel right. When asked if Hooten had ever been alone with the woman's daughter, she began crying and told police of a time she once left the baby with Hooten for approximately 15 minutes while she ran to the drugstore. When she returned, her baby was in an unusually temperamental state, crying uncontrollably, and did so every time Hooten held her thereafter. Police confirmed with the woman that she was not aware of Hooten's status as a violent sex offender, and after learning of his history, she immediately threw him out of the apartment. The baby was evaluated at a local hospital at the request of police, though it was later determined that she was not sexually penetrated in any way. Police arrested Hooten for failure to register as a sex offender, as his string of prior violent sex offenses dictated. And while searching his car to retrieve the woman's purse, police discovered a 22 caliber rifle in Hooten's trunk which he was not legally permitted to possess as a convicted violent felon. The car was registered to Hooten's then-wife at the time, who was not aware that he was seeing or living with the new woman. Both charges in the police report indicate Hooten's violent criminal past was well-known and well-documented, even referring to him as a, quote, serious violent felon at one point. When first appearing in front of the Fayette County Circuit judge, no prosecutor was required present. And even though the judge three times referred to Hooten as a, quote, serious violent felon, she set his bail at $12,000 and sent him along. A family friend would eventually post the minimum 10% or $1,200 bail some three weeks later, permitting Hooten to leave jail and return a free man once again to the community. Just three days after he posted bail and left jail, the prosecutor's office filed a report detailing 10 pages of Hooten's violent criminal history. And though he represented a great risk to the community and presented as a known repeat violent offender, the judge six times granted Hooten continuances, delaying his eventual trial each time until the last date was set for March 8th, some six days after he murdered Tara Willenborg. But even during the time he awaited trial, Hooten again ended up back in county jail, this time arrested for possession and intent to deliver narcotics after police encountered him at a local Clarksville hotel in possession of multiple bottles of Percocet. Hooten allegedly admitted that he was selling the drugs. Prosecutors again agreed to plea Hooten down to a lesser charge of possessing narcotics, for which he received a three-year sentence, which had immediately been suspended to 15 months jail time, time he had already served while awaiting a conclusion to the drug arrest. He was again released after signing the plea agreement since he had served enough time in Fayette County Jail. At the time of his plea, prosecutors required Hooten to sign an affidavit detailing his entire violent criminal history, which by the time of his latest arrest equated to seven felony convictions. He did so as instructed, and the form was submitted by his public defender and signed by the prosecutor. But upon later inspection by the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, the form was left blank. A glaring omission, somehow missed by everyone in the court, 
that had a part in granting Hooten's eventual release back onto the streets on probation. It was a blunder of epic proportions, one that some would claim allowed Hooten one last rape that would tragically end in Tara Willenborg's murder. And then when you saw that she was <clears throat> no longer breathing, take us through what you did next. It looks like you tried to cover it up. Well, what I did, I took her off the bed and tried to give her CPR and mouth to mouth trying to revive her. And I did that for like 10 to 15 minutes trying to get her back and I couldn't. And I just acted like, you know, she did it herself so I tied up one of her aprons or whatever around her neck and then I left. Tara had just started a new job at a local Subway sandwich shop, her black apron still hanging there in the bedroom where Hooten violently sexually assaulted her, choking her during the attack until she lost consciousness and died. After allegedly attempting to revive her, Hooten tried to stage the scene to look like a suicide. Why didn't you call police or ambulance at that time? I was scared because I ain't did, you know, did that crime. Mr. Hooten. People who are charged with murder and rape usually don't speak out and tell us details about what they did. Why are you doing this? I'm just trying to, you know, give y'all closure of what happened, you know, and everything, and help our family. What do you think should happen to you now, you're, now that you're behind bars? Do you think you should stay there? Oh yeah. You know, like I, you know, I know I need help. You know. Prosecutors are considering making this a death penalty case. What do you think about that? Well, if they want to take my life for life, that's fine. What were her last words to you? Richard Hooden carried out his attack on 17-year-old Tara Willenborg in an eerily similar fashion to the last two rapes he was convicted for. He had been out earlier in the evening with his girlfriend and some of her family at a bar up the street called Rojo's, which was located inside of the America's Best Inn Hotel. When Hooten allegedly claimed he didn't feel like drinking, and left the group to return to his girlfriend's apartment sometime around 11 p.m. Upon arriving at the apartment complex, he saw Tara sitting on the steps and admitted to police that he knew there in that moment upon first spotting her that he was going to rape her. Hooten approached Tara and asked if he could hang out with her, eventually talking his way into her and Josh's apartment, claiming he wanted to watch TV and wait for his girlfriend to return. After watching TV for only five or ten minutes, Hooten began making sexual advances and explained that he then forced himself on Tara, just as he had done to so many other women in the past, eventually dragging her into the bedroom where he continued the attack, both of his hands firmly wrapped around her neck the entire time. Though the affidavit has since been sealed by the courts, there are indications that Hooten may have also used some type of blunt object in a sexual manner during the course of the attack and that he may have continued on sexually assaulting Tara even after realizing that she had died as a result of her injuries. After leaving her apartment between 1.30 and 2 o'clock in the morning, Richard calmly gathered his things from his girlfriend's apartment across the hall and waited patiently for the group to return home from the bar. Joshua Lewis wouldn't return to his apartment to discover Tara until some 90 to 120 minutes later. Her dead body by then, already cold to the touch, and any hope of reviving her firmly lost with time. Though Richard Hooten's case would have likely qualified for a death sentence conviction if sent to trial, he instead pleaded guilty, this time to rape and murder charges, and as he had done so many times before, avoided the most serious consequences for his actions, and was instead sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus additional sentences of 50 and 20 years for rape, 
criminal deviant conduct and for his repeated convictions as a habitual offender. He claimed early on that he wanted to come clean, to confess and plead guilty so that Tara's family wouldn't have to suffer the agony of reliving her death through lengthy trial and subsequent appeals in future years. But in a sick twist of fate, Hooten would later claim to police that he knew of several murders that allegedly occurred on a Clarksville farm, where police eventually spent weeks carefully digging, searching for bodies that ultimately turned out not to be there, as if Hooten lied, simply desiring his name be kept alive in the media cycle. He was later indicted for another rape while serving his sentence in prison, dating back to New Year's Day in January of 2013, just a few months before he raped and killed Tara Willenborg. On March 11, 2017, on what would have been the day after her 22nd birthday, Jeffersonville community members were invited to celebrate Tara's life at a recently established memorial garden in her hometown at the St. Luke's United Church of Christ. The event included a women's self-defense class, a puppet show, and a charity auction, with all proceeds going to the Southern Indiana Animal Rescue, the St. Luke's United Church of Christ, and a new scholarship that assists teens with the cost associated in obtaining their GEDs, just like she had. The event occurs every year in Tara's honor, to remember her selfless generosity, her passion for animals, and her dreams to one day open up her own cupcake bakery. The family and community remembers Tara's vigor for life by honoring her memory with the simple slogan, Love Wins. Well, you made it. What a difficult and horrendous case this week. You know, our aim on Invisible Choir is to bring voice to the voiceless and to help expose the types of systemic failures that let innocent people, just like Tara Willenborg, fall victim to preventable crimes. In order to help grow the show, please remember to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And consider signing up for our Patreon, Invisible Choir Premium, where you get early episode releases, a mini-episode every single Friday, special exclusive monthly full-length episodes, and more. Our confidential informant-level supporters will receive a limited-edition Invisible Choir metal enamel pin if signed up by September 30th. So sign up today. There are no obligations, so you can cancel anytime. The sources for this episode can be found in the show notes and at InvisibleChoir.com. We rely on the hard work and journalistic integrity of many local and national news sources to produce this show. Without them, we wouldn't be able to bring these cases to a broader worldwide audience. We thank them for their hard work, and we thank you for listening. Hey friends, our promo this week is for Crimeline's podcast. The host, Charlie, does an amazing job exploring the historical and cultural context surrounding some truly terrifying crimes. She also regularly covers cases of missing and murdered indigenous women a cause that is especially close to my heart as an Anishinaabe indigenous man. These cases deserve worldwide attention, and the families deserve closure. Give Crime Lines a listen today. Hey there, Charlie here. You might recognize my voice from the true crime show Insight, RIP. I've rebranded the show as a solo show now, and it's called Crime Lines. I will walk you through the events of the crime, any trial that occurred, and the aftermath. 
Recent Crime Lines episodes include The Jack Family, Missing 30 Years from British Columbia, Abraham Shakespeare, a man who won the Florida lottery and lost his life, and Janet Moses, a young woman who died in a Makatu lifting ceremony in New Zealand. And if you miss Insight, don't worry. The old episodes are still available on the Crime Lines feed ready for you to binge. So go subscribe to Crime Lines on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.